Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. I'm Marcus Grodi, your host for this uh, program, and I'm joined uh, by my good friend, Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Hello, Monsignor. Hello, Marcus. It's good to be with you. It's, here we all both are uh, social distancing uh, to uh, you know, be in compliance with the world that we're in. I'm in Ohio. You're up in Minnesota. So I think that may be a social, safe social distance. <laughs> you doing all right up there in, oh, the, it's, in, the, yeah, it's, in, the, in the big it's north? It's a wonderful time to be quiet. I feel like I'm d discovering a kind of a hermit's vocation. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a great pleasure for you to join us on this program. Those of you, uh, I hope you've caught the earlier uh, introductory episodes of this program, which Monsignor and I are going to to do what I consider a long and daunting task. Uh, Monsignor is far more equipped uh, with his patristic studies and his work. I, I've enjoyed learning the early church fathers over the years, but the idea of studying Irenaeus's wonderful book against heresies still, in my mind, is a, is a, you know, again, a daunting task. But uh, if you go to chnetwork.org, uh, you click on Deep in History, you'll find links to all of our Deep in History programs. But there's also a link on that page to the very book that we're going to be studying and the translation that we're studying. It's uh, the translation by John Keeble. Um, Against Heresies, and it's uh, you, you can download the whole free ebook, PDF, Kindle version, whatever fits for you. What Monsignor and I are planning to do is work our way chronologically through the book in a way jumping from gem to gem. We're going to pick out significant passages that really live to this day in importance. And then what we'll do in the, is we'll summarize the text between the gems, but we'll focus on the gems. And one of the reasons we'll get to in a moment is that a lot of what's in book one and two of Against Heresies um, is a rough road dealing with the individual teachings of uh, the Gnostic writers. So uh, now, Monsignor, would you like to make another comment before I jump into the text uh, as we begin no, Marcus, our study I today? The only thing I'd want to say is to reaffirm your point about how uh, deep of a swim this first book is. And so I think it's a wise thing for people to jump over a lot of this. Um, and we'll try to pinpoint the things that are really important in this. Um, but it's uh, to see the Gnostic system in all of its entirety is <laughs> crazy. It's it's crazy. As I was mentioning to you, Monsignor, before we got on, I happened to be reading in a, an eight-volume church history called Moret 
Thompson. I think it was written in the 1930s. I like the, the, the book. And in that book, Moret, who was a French scholar, has a two-page summary of the Gnostics that Irenaeus describes. He brings it all together, and it didn't help. It was just as crazy. Yes, right. I exactly. mean, it's it's like exactly. Cool. I, I suppose I'll probably be next week we'll get on. Uh, we're going to look a little bit more in depth into the um, the progenitor of all these Gnostics, Simon, the magician, Simon Magus, and um, Irenaeus puts together um, a kind of a systematic account of what he taught. Boy, if you want to go into outer space, that's. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it, it really is. It, yeah. It's goofy. And we'll talk about yeah. that in a moment. So what we're going to do today, and uh, if you will, the title of this episode, we're calling False Gospels and the Real Church. And in a way that summarizes, if you will, the, the first 34, 35 pages of this translation gets us up to Book 1, Chapter 10, which is where we're going to focus. That's the gem we're going to look at today is Chapter 10. But before we get there, what we find is that when Irenaeus is writing about the Gnostics, addressing them, addressing their concerns, sometimes little statements he makes reveal his convictions, the convictions of the early church that sometimes we take for granted 2,000 years later, 1,800 years later. Um, and this that's why this book to me is so absolutely fascinating, written about 175 AD. And it's important for us that we, for, in a way, we almost have to forget what happened in the 3rd and the 4th and the 5th and the 6th century, what Augustine said, what St. Thomas Aquinas said, you know, what's in the Nicene Creed, that didn't happen yet. None of that happened yet. This is before all that. So the question comes, why did he write this book? And we'll get a little bit in it today. So what Monsignor and I will do is we're just going to go back and forth and pick out a few sentences from this, these first 35 pages and then talk briefly about them because our goal is to get to chapter 10. So I'm going to begin in which is basically the introduction that that Irenaeus writes, it's on page one of the book, paragraph one, and he says this. He says, For as much as there are some who, putting the truth away from them, introduce in its stead false tales and vain genealogies, which minister questions according to the saying of the apostle, rather than godly edifying which is of faith. And by cunning assemblage of plausible topics, pervert the mind of the simpler sort and lead them away captive, adulterating the oracles of the Lord, so becoming evil expounders of good words and subvert many, withdrawing them under pretext of knowledge or gnosis. From him by whom this universe was framed and adorned as though they had something higher and greater to show them 
than God who made heaven and earth and all things that are therein, alluring persuasively enough in the first instance by dexterity of words such as are unsuspecting into this mode of iniquity, a mode of inquiry, but in the most revolting way bringing them to ruin at last by framing their minds to all blasphemy and impiety against the Creator, they having no power even on this point to distinguish falsehoods, falsehood from truth. Now, Monsignor, I'd have stopped earlier, but that was one long sentence. It was. That's right. <laughs> he wrote that. It, it hadn't uh, even stopped he, yet. He wrote in Greek, and <laughs> and a Greek sentence is long, <laughs> as we know from Saint Paul. <laughs> Yeah, no, no punctuation. That's marks. right. No. You know, it goes on and on and on and on. So this is kind of a, a summary of this idea of these people who think they're wiser, that they have an inside scoop. And it, it, it's a summary of what's all coming ahead. And Monsignor, it seems to me, and I, and I pass this over to you because of your background, it, it seems to me that when I read beyond Irenaeus a little bit and I read the writings of Clement of Alexandria, who's just a little bit later, and then into Origen, who's just a little bit later as they establish their school in Alexandria, it seems that this whole period, we even see a little bit of Justin Martyr addressing this, that it seems that one of the things the devil rose up at this time was this philosophical quest to answer the question, how is it that an infinite, all-knowing, omnipotent, holy, spiritual spirit, creator God, can have any contact with this physical, finite, sinful, fallen world. How is there a connection between that God way up there and us? And it seems like that's what they were trying to get to. It was a kind of, you know, when I think about it now, it's, it was a kind of a, of a syncretistic approach to take basically Platonism um, from, from pagan thought and um, a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of paganism, and a whole lot of um, various mystical religions from the East and all that, and they they just mix it all up together. Um, it's crazy. Marcus, I, there was something, one thing I wanted to respond to in, in this first paragraph, um, where, yes. you know, they, where Irenaeus says they adulterate the oracles of the Lord. Um, I think maybe it's a good thing just to start our work here, just to remind everybody that over the last uh, 50 years or so, we've had to live with uh, a bunch of scholars running around telling us that the Catholic Church shut down these early Christian voices, these alternative Christian voices. Oh. And um, I can remember as a, as a graduate student uh, sitting in at uh, New Testament seminars at Harvard Divinity School, nobody was doing any of the canonical writings. They were all doing apocryphal writings because this stuff had been discovered in the during World War II. I think the British soldiers found it in 
many texts in Nag Hammadi, Egypt. And these were coming out and everybody was so excited about this and said, look at what a rich and diverse um, culture early Christianity was until the Catholic Church came and stomped it all out. That really makes yeah. Irenaeus particularly relevant for where we are in our in our life today. Yeah, on the one hand, the minute, minute details of of how these Gnostics tried to explain this mystery, the play Romas and all that stuff is just crazy. But as you said, you know, this uh, the mystery of all this, the superior knowledge, the secrets. Um, you know, a book that I highly recommend, I really liked, I, I, it's controversial in some ways, is a book called by Roth Duthate called Bad Religion, How America Became a Country of Heretics. He wrote that in 2010. And just what you were talking about, Monsignor, he summarizes in there how everything changed from the 1940s all the way through up to today. And a lot of it had to do with the God is dead movement and all this other stuff, answering the same questions. I mean, you had, you were an Anglican and you had a great teacher named, well, there was one named Spong, but there was also one J.A.T. Robinson. <laughs> right. Unfortunately. So this hasn't gone away. It, 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 it sticks its ugly head up throughout history. And the point of this is St. Irenaeus was dealing with it early. Monsignor, let me read the next one, if you will, and then I'll pass it right on to you for your okay. thoughts. Because in paragraph two, page two, we see that Irenaeus makes another important point. He says, and to the best of our power, we will shortly and clearly set forth the meaning of those who are now teaching amiss. I mean of Ptolemy and his partisans, which schools a kind of efflorescence from that of Valentinus. And then we will suggest topics according to our moderate ability for the refutation of the same, showing how monstrous their assertions are and how inconsistent with the truth. And there he introduces us to two of the early Gnostics, Ptolemy and Valentinus. Um, and I think mostly we're going to get a, uh, a dose of Valentinus, Valentinian Gnosticism. Um, that, that's the one that seems to exercise the church fathers the most. But yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. The thing that jumped out at me in this paragraph is he said, um, yeah, there, so there's the goal. There's the goal, and that's that's wonderful. Um, paragraph three, page three. Um, this struck me again, uh, as it shows that Irenaeus is following the lead of Saint Paul. Irenaeus writes rather in simplicity and truth and plainness the things which are written to thee lovingly, and he's talking to. His, his audience, his parishioners in his diocese. He's talking to other bishops, whomever, the priests, okay, which are written to thee lovingly. Thou wilt lovingly accept, and what is more, wilt cherish them within thyself as being more competent than we are. 
receiving them from us as a kind of seeds and principles. That reminded me of what St. Paul said to Timothy. And he says, what I've received, I pass on to you. And now you choose men who can choose others and teach them likewise. There we have apostolic succession in the passing on of the truth. All right, Monsignor, okay. would, would you uh, take the next paragraph? As we have sought, according to thy request made long ago for information about their meaning, not only to make it known to thee, but also to provide thee with resources for demonstrating its falsehoods, so wilt thou too seek honestly to minister unto others according to the grace given thee by the Lord, to the end that our people may no longer be perverted by their show of reasoning, whereof the account is as follows. Um, and so what jumps out at me about that is how much of a challenge these Gnostic teachers were in local congregations all around. Um, they came in and they were terribly disruptive and people were confused. And so the pastors had to respond in a definitive way to that. It reminds me a bit of our work in the Coming Home Network where we have people coming to us with questions about what's the true Christian faith. You know, what's which gospel today? Uh, what about the, the things I've heard about the Catholic Church that seem really strange? Are they true? And so not only is it our commitment um, to give them information so that they know it, we also provide them with resources, you know, demonstrating the truth of the church as well as the, the falsehoods that are out there. So it's, again, that's according to the grace given to thee. So we also recognize that any conversion behind it, it yes, is the grace wonderful. of God. That's a wonderful point. And yeah. so this is Irenaeus saying way back in the second century, the you know, setting the trajectory for how we carry out Christ's mission to go, therefore, and make disciples, teaching them all, baptizing, and then teaching them all in the midst of all the battles. Then if we jump to chapter 3, paragraph 1, it's on page 9 of the book, um, he gets a little bit into these false teachers. He says, but all this, they say, is not openly uttered, being all cannot receive such knowledge, or gnosis, whenever that word knowledge is there. However, our Savior has mysteriously indicated it in parables to such as have power to understand. They're, they're claiming a superior gift of knowledge and wisdom above anybody else. They, have a, a, they understand the parables better than the church, better than the bishops, better than the priests. And that does, that's not around anymore, Monsignor, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Isn't that, it's amazing. Yeah, because they would have regarded, um, um, well, they were the spiritual church. And um, they they called the Catholic Church the animal church, basically, or because it was the lo a lower level of the of the brain that functioned with the bishops. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Well, it's a good thing that doesn't <laughs> happen anymore, you know. <laughs> but it, it's also probably because the Catholic Church from the very beginning has recognized the sacramental economy. So in other words, the physicality yeah. of our faith. That's right, yeah. And of course, they had no room for the sacraments in their system. Um, all that, anything right. physical was to be eschewed. And, you know, those of you that are listening that are either former non-Catholic Christians or are non-Catholic Christians, you got to take a step back. So many non-Catholic traditions are non-physical, all in our head. It's just faith alone. It's an internal conviction. Yeah. That's it. And that's very Gnostic. Even to the point of, there are some groups, of course, the spiritual is the only thing good, the physical is bad. Well, that is Gnosticism. By definition, I think, yes. Right. Yeah. All right, Monsignor, jump into chapter 3, verse or paragraph 6. Now, the reason I picked this one out is because, again, in here, Irenaeus points to something that he takes for granted, but I don't know that we appreciate it yet at this point in the church, he says, such then are the sayings of them all about their play Romas and their vain invention, violating, adopting the good works to their own evil devices. And not only from the gospels and apostolic writings do they endeavor to make out their proofs, perverting their versions and falsifying their expositions, but also out of the law and the prophets, taking occasion from the many parables and allegories there uttered. Once again, there's the foundation of the scriptures. That's it, yeah. Um, and, and, of course, they had their own system to, of interpreting all of those um, texts in the Old Testament. And we'll probably get a chance to see how they um, tried to um, argue that they were um, uh, descendants of certain Seth, uh, for, Seth was one, obviously, that was important for them. Um, but all these mysterious figures that didn't fit into the unfolding of salvation history, they appear on the side, basically. They claim them as sort of hidden uh, and, and secret progenitors for themselves. It's a crazy system. Uh, well, later we'll talk about Marcion. Yeah. Right, who who decides he's going to cut out some of the scriptures that don't fit his yeah. agenda? Yeah, yeah. So we'll get to him later. All right, quickly a couple more things, then we're going to get to the main point of our discussion today. Let's look at chapter eight, paragraph one, page twenty-four. Here again, he summarizes how they twist scripture and truth. And again, I'm reading this. This he's writing in the second century, and as I read this, Monsignor. I'm asking, is this, does this remain true in our world? Now, such being their theory, which neither prophets proclaimed, nor the Lord taught, nor the apostles delivered, whereby they flatter themselves that they know more concerning the universe than any others, reading it out of what was never written, and as the saying is, studying to twist ropes out of sand. They endeavor plausibly to accommodate to what has been said, either parables of our Lord or prophetic sayings or discourse of the apostles, that their fiction 
may not appear to be without witness. The order, indeed, and connection of the scriptures they overpass, and as much as in them lies, disjoin the members of the truth, and they transfer and transform and make one thing out of another, and so deceive many by their perverse skill in taking together the Lord's oracles, which they so apply. Yeah, remember, we it's that fundamental distinction between um, what we're called to do as faithful ministers of the word, exegesis, where we, we read <laughs> from, we faithfully read from scripture, but then the opposite of that is eisegesis, what we read into scripture. And um, that's a classic definition that uh, St. Irenaeus gives here of how they took their presuppositions and they, they took them and they basically reinterpreted scripture around them. I hate to, to make this claim about the people of their day, to call them unsophisticated. Um, but if you will, being sophisticated isn't necessarily a yes. good thing. That's a good point. But, but when you look at, for example, movies in the 20th century, you look at black and white movies and you look at movies in the 1930s and 40s, you see people laughing at things and doing goofy things in these old movies that today we wouldn't even laugh at. We couldn't imagine. But what was happening is that people in the 20th century became watching television and radio and movies so much that we became sophisticated as a culture. At this time, these people didn't have any of that. So when they'd have a really intelligent, winsome, charismatic guy come through with these neat ideas, that was the only entertainment they had. Yeah. <laughs> and they listened. They didn't know if they were doing exegesis or eisegesis, you know. Again, it reminds me of those in the Geico commercial where the raccoons are eating the garbage and one says, oh, man, this tastes so bad. You got to try it. <laughs> I think so that's have, what's happening here. Let me read the no. next one, Monsignor, and, and uh, get your thoughts on this. This is in chapter 9, paragraph 1, page 29. Thou seest, dearly beloved, their craft, which they that use deceive themselves, dealing rudely with the Scriptures in their endeavors to make good out of them their own fiction. Well, actually, that's just a, a reiteration of what we've been looking at. So let's Let's move on. Okay, now we're at the meat of what we want to get to, Monsignor. And the, the first section um, is uh, just a little before it, but I wanted to point this out in chapter 9, paragraph 4, page 32. I believe this is very important for us to hear. Non-Catholic Christians that are, are just not aware of the history of the church or of the early church fathers, they say scripture alone, and they, they don't recognize the source of the truth we have today. This is Irenaeus writing in 175. He said, and so too, he that keeps unswerving in himself the rule of truth, which he received by his baptism, will recognize the names out of the scriptures and the sayings and the parables What's he talking about, Monsignor? This rule of the truth. Well, it's clearly a reference to a, bap a, a baptismal creed. 
Um, um, and I always was, you know, in these early centuries, um, that was one of the most um, significant parts of the catechesis of people coming to the faith was um, just before they were baptized, they were taught the creed. Um, it was not something that was public, so to speak. Um, well, maybe that's not the right word to use, but um, they were taught that that uh, it is in that creed that everything it's it's an everything it's the kernel of the heart of the truth, and so he uses um, the expression um, uh, the rule of the truth, regula veritatis. Um, other others in this time are going to speak about the uh, the rule of faith, the regula fidei, but these are generally references to the creed and probably not the creed in a kind of thinking of it as a text, but what just the, the simple structure of the creed, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and their work in, in bringing salvation to the world. We're, we're going to encounter this all through his book. In other words, how do you determine what is the rule of faith, rule of truth? Where did it come from? How can you know which one's true? I'm assuming that most newly baptized people in that day didn't have a little mimeograph paper of the rule of truth. <laughs> they had to learn it up here. That's right. Right? And that's why they would stand in, in, in yep. worship to say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Yeah, we... Know, and, Later we'll get into we have We have no prayer cards from the early church that show <laughs> the Apostles' Creed on it. <laughs> and again, this emphasizes baptism, which we'll run through. The assumption in the early church, all through the early fathers, is that it's baptism through which we enter into the new life. We're born again, received into the body of Christ. It's through baptism. And he emphasizes it here without apology. And it's also, we'll recognize the names of the scriptures and the sayings and the parables. So a part of their training was to know which of these books, which of these books are the trustworthy books compared to all the other ones floating around. Yeah, You know, yeah, they learned it in their training yeah. for baptism. So we see that there. All right, we're at the need, the gem. It's a long section, but... Monsignor, this is an important one. If you will, I'm going to read the first little paragraph, which is the end of chapter 9. It's on page 33, okay. in which, in which uh, and then pass it over to you, in which he says, For indeed, one may hereby accurately discern, even before our proof, the certainty of the truth proclaimed by the church and their perverted and false statement. And then comes this amazing section, um, chapter 10 of book one. And I just wanted to point out before uh, starting, jumping into this, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, this is the longest, there are three significant quotations from St. Irenaeus. And this is the longest one. Um, it's found in paragraph 834 in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, uh, but we'll just kind of go through this. Um, sorry, I gave you the wrong one. It's, 
it's not it's paragraph 173 and 174 where we meet up with this um, for right. the first time so here we here All we right. go I'll just All right. it's a as it's a lengthy thing uh, should I just read the first and then we'll pause and go to the second so. You can read the first paragraph. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's just all so okay. good. It really is all so good. For as to the church dispersed as she is through the whole world unto the ends of the earth, yet having received from the apostles and their disciples the faith in one God and Father Almighty, who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all that is therein, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was made flesh for our salvation, and in the Holy Ghost, who by the prophets declared the economies and the advents and the birth of a virgin and the passion and the rising from the dead and the bodily ascension into heaven of the beloved, Christ Jesus our Lord, and his coming from the heavens in the glory of the Father to sum up all things, that's something as we get into this study, that expression, which comes from Ephesians 1.10, um, that's going to be extremely significant for um, how Irenaeus understands the work of Christ. Sorry to break it there. Oh, I'm just going to say, uh, those of you listening, we just talked a moment ago about the rule of faith, the rule of truth. Here he's that's summarizing it. it. Sounds it's very familiar. exactly right. Yeah. Very familiar. Okay, so I'll pick up yeah. right there. Um, so he, he's going to raise up. sum up all things and to raise up all flesh uh, of all human nature, that to Christ Jesus, our Lord and God and Savior and King, according to the good pleasure of the invisible Father, every knee may bow of things in heaven and in earth and under the earth, and that every tongue may confess to him, and he may administer just judgment to them all, that is, may both send into the everlasting fire the spiritual things of wickedness, as well angels that have transgressed and passed into revolt, as the ungodly and unjust and lawless and blasphemous among men, and also to the righteous and holy, and to such as have kept his commandments and persevered in his love, whether from the first or after penitence, may freely give life, grant incorruption, and compass for them eternal glory. That's, that's the rule that's the of faith. That's the rule of faith. And it's just amazing. I mean, there are so many neat things in there that um, sometimes I, I know a lot of people I've met who talk so much about the development of faith, they presume that all this stuff came much later as things were fine-tuned. Uh, but this is, this, is the, this is all there, everything we believe. In fact, Marcus, uh, to raise up all flesh. Yeah, Marcus, so I, one expression he uses, maybe interesting just to comment on this too, where um, he talks about the invisible father. And this, if we were with early Christians in the second and third century. Um, this is something that would have been very important to them. God the Father is invisible and unknowable, and he is only accessible to us 
because he sent his son who became visible for our sake. And so, um, and so that, that idea between the father being invisible and unknowable and the son who has come into our world um, to, to make it possible for us to even know who God is, um, it's, it's just, it just jumped out at me right there at that point. Yeah, because still at this point, and it'll be a long time, another 100 or 200 years, the, the pagan surrounding influences, the physicality of their pagan idols is all around them, what, what they've come yeah. to. So again, the invisibility of God who was re revealed in Jesus. Um, and, you know, you know, people that today talk about faith alone, that's all you need. If you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're guaranteed of heaven regardless of how you live yeah. your life. Where did that idea come from? Well, here's Irenaeus saying, and also to the righteous and holy, and to such as have kept his commandments and persevered in his love, whether from the first or after penitence. After penitence, that's it significant. Is, that's significant. That, very significant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because soon they're going to have a battle over what about sins committed after that's baptism. Right. That's right. And um, how do you think Jean Calvin would have handled this text? How would Calvin have handled this text? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I wish I was, I know there'll be listeners that are far more experts on Calvin than, than I would ever claim to be, though I was, you know, a Calvinist. But um, I would say, actually, I think I would, if I were reading this as a staunch Calvinist back when, I would say, we'll see. The, you know, the, the works righteousness is already creeping into the church. <laughs> you know, Protestants have, you know, when did the church go wrong? Some say, you know, Constantine, some say at different points, uh, you know, uh, Brett Ehrman says it was, it got screwed up at the, at the Nicene council, uh, you know, there are feminists that say it got screwed up because it was really supposed to be Mary yeah. Magdalene, but the, the apostles pushed her aside, you know. So when did it get screwed up? You know, the Mormons pretty much say it got screwed up immediately when Jesus died. So, you know, one could say, well, yeah, here in the early church fathers are already getting all messed up. Well, you know, the, the, there's a thread if you correct the, connect the dots, because there's not a... The one thing I appreciate about Irenaeus, when he looks into doctrine... At this point, he's not going be he rarely goes beyond scripture. He uses scriptural terms to talk about the Trinity, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about salvation. He uses scriptural terms. It's later that Tertullian and others will get into, you know, how do you put all this together? Everything he says there is from scripture. Everything he says there. All right, Monsignor. You want, you want to do the next, next section? Okay. Yeah, I'll read yeah. the next section. All right. Okay. And it's... Number uh, two. It's yeah. powerful. Number two. This preaching and this faith, the church, 
as we said before, dispersed as she is in the whole world, keeps diligently, as though she dwelt but in one house, and her belief herein is just as if she had one only soul and the same heart, and she proclaims and teaches and delivers these things harmoniously as possessing one mouth. Monsignor, let's stop there. Reflect on that. Just that statement, that one sentence alone. The context, of course, again, is um, how how St. Irenaeus is talking about how the all there all these heretical groups are they just multiply and and they're all over the place and he says in contrast to that um we consider the the church the catholic church and how it it um it lives and breathes as if it is one body one soul one mind and it just i think it's just a magnificent description of what christian unity is all about here Catholic, yeah. He even equates, he even equates in the opening words, this preaching and this truth, the church. That reminds me of St. Paul when he says the pillar and bulwark of the truth is the church, which actually I'm pretty sure Irenaeus will eventually quote that word. Yeah. This one soul, one heart. Well, what is it that keeps this one church united? That's what we'll, I'll read now as we go forward. Irenaeus continues, Thus, while the languages of the world differ, the tenor of the tradition is one and the same. And neither have the churches situated in the regions of Germany believed otherwise, nor do they hold any other tradition, neither in the parts of Spain nor among the Celts, nor the East, nor in Egypt, nor in Libya, nor those which are situate in the middle parts of the world. But as the Son, the creature of God, is in all the world one and the same, so also the preaching of the truth shines everywhere and enlightens all men who wish to come to the knowledge of the truth. And neither he who is altogether mighty in speech among those who preside in our churches will utter anything different from this, for no man is above his master, nor will he who is weak in discourse abate aught of the tradition. Yea, the faith, being one and the same, neither he that is able to speak much of it hath anything over, nor hath he that speaks but little any lack. I I remember in those, uh, in the months before I was um, called to become a Catholic. Um, in in my work in the, when I was uh, serving as a bishop in the Episcopal Church, I remember very vividly going to these meetings, and we, then we were fighting over questions about um, same-sex marriage and such, and the argument was that Christians in Africa or in the third world may be in a different place, but you know where we live in our culture in North America or in North, in Europe, um, we're you know for us we need to go forward in terms of opening the door and and changing the well, traditional teachings of the church to suit this. And um, 
And it just, I remember it, that just fundamentally violated the principle of what being Catholic is all about. Um, because, you know, the word uh, Catholic is, um, in Greek, you remember, is katholos, according to the whole. So um, the idea that one part of the world would have a different faith than another part of the world is not Catholic. And right now, it just sometimes feels, I don't mean to be too obtuse here, sometimes though it feels odd to watch, um, say, the German, since Germany is mentioned in this text, the yeah. German Episcopal Conference yeah. wanting to say something different than where the faith of the church has traditionally been. This is not acceptable. And I, I can't help but remember when I was a Presbyterian pastor, when I began to be concerned about this issue. Um, if you continue in my word, you will be my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John chapter 8. Okay. Where's this confusion coming from? Where's the one truth that unites all these churches in all these places? And here we have, before the even the end of the second century, yeah. he's talking about the existence of the church in Germany, in Spain, in England, or in, in Asia, essentially, in Egypt, in Libya, in the middle parts of the world. It's all over the place. It's a magnificent vision. Yeah. yeah so. And he... He uses a number of words in parallel ways to mean the same thing. The truth, the faith, the tradition, the church. In his mind, they are one and the same. The truth, the faith, the tradition, the church. And so behind all this writing... That's the foundation in which he comes. I, I jumped one last little sentence, which is connected to this, but it's separated by some other stuff. But if you go to the end of chapter 10, paragraph 335, he says, The real church hath all one in the same faith throughout the world, as we have said before. The real church. So how do you determine all these other churches? Well, that's what his book is about. Any closing thoughts? Oh, yeah, I just wanted to pick up one other thing about how he comforts us by saying that um, if, if we are not that able as preachers, we can't hurt the faith. <laughs> just as those that think they're so bright that they just don't know what, you know, that the whole world should fall down at their feet. Nobody can damage this faith, this Catholic faith. I mean, in itself, it is yeah. pure yeah. and whole. Yeah. And this is, this I think is the basis for what we sometimes talk of um, as the analogy of faith that, um, and it, and he's, he, this is very important for St. Irenaeus too, that um, there's, there's so much about the faith that we can't fully understand. Um, partly it's just our, in a, we just don't, we're, we don't have the capacity to grasp it all. 
And, uh, and we just have to have a humility to accept that. And then we learn that, you know, from time to time, the church will be able to articulate things in such a way that will help us to understand that, that undivided faith better. Um, but it cannot go off on its own. You can't set one part of scripture over against another. It's one faith that came, yeah, and, and, one revelation from the Father through his word, and we serve that. Yeah, he talks in, in one of those statements about addressing, recognizing Christ as king. And we take that for granted, but what he's pointing out is something that Augustine will recognize later, is that when St. John's in Revelations talks about the thousand years of the kingdom, he's talking about now. Yes. Jesus is Lord now. That was the gospel. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. He's king now. And we recognize in that passage in Revelation that the on the one hand, the devil has been bound during this time, which doesn't mean he can't do a whole bunch of bad things, but there's one thing he was bound that he couldn't do anymore, and that opened the door to the hearts of the Gentiles, is the spread of the gospel, where the old, as Isaiah said, were in darkness, now they have seen a great light. And in this section, we see Irenaeus pointing to the gospel in just 170-some years has, has gone, as he says, to the end of the earth that they know of. The work of grace is amazingly powerful. Monsignor, thank you very much. We, we waxed eloquently on this a long time, but uh, we'll, we'll pick up next week, next week, we're going to look at one of the characters that Irenaeus says is the is the uh, the seed of all this craziness. That's right, right. Um, Simon, Simon the magician, Simon Magus, and um, oh, I was looking for my notes on this here. Um, if hmm, uh, I think that will take us to page. 68 okay. and 69 and 70 in this book is really the, the next jumping point we're going to work to is towards 68, 69, and 70. And I had, um, I had a note here um, that, uh, you know, chapter 27 in book one, um, uh, well, all throughout there, but he goes at, in that uh, in chapter 27, he points out how it is that all of these Gnostics have a common father, and his name is Simon. And we met up with him in the Acts of the all Apostles. Right. All right. Thank you, Monsignor. Could we close with okay. your blessing? All right. We thank you, blessed Lord, for the gift of your word, this life-giving word. May we receive it all just as it has been given to us by you. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon us and remain with us this day and always. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor Steenson. And also thank all of you for joining us on this episode of Deep in History. God bless. God bless.